This episode of 80 Days is brought to you by HarryBaby.com, the company that makes the funniest Irish-themed t-shirts. Harry Baby shipped to 71 countries last year, and to celebrate its 10th anniversary in 2017, Harry Baby aims to deliver to all 196 countries in the world by St. Patrick's Day 2018. You can help by ordering now from HarryBaby.com and use the promo code 80DAYS, that's 80DAYS, to get 10% off. I am willing to wager 20,000. I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. You accept? Don't accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast, as always, is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Joe Byrne in Byrne, Switzerland. And Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And in this episode, we'll be talking about Uruguay, a small but prosperous country sandwiched between two massive South American powerhouses, Brazil and Argentina. Widely considered one of the most politically stable and progressive countries in Latin America, Uruguay is home to just over 3.5 million people and about 10 times as many sheep. By landmass, it is the second smallest nation in the region. After a protracted four-way struggle between Spain, Portugal, Argentina and Brazil, Uruguay declared its independence in 1825. The country then stabilized until the 1950s when political turmoil ensued. In more recent years, Uruguay escaped the recession that spread throughout South America in the early 2000s and has since emerged as a bastion of democracy, progressive policies and free speech. Joe, do you want to kick us off by telling us where the name came from? Of course. So the name Uruguay comes from an indigenous word. The Guarani tribe used to call the river All Uruguay. right, all right, pointy the, heads. We the... all know where the name comes from. It's a hilarious joke, and let's listen to it here. <laughs> Look at this country. You are gay. <laughs> Anyone who grew up on The Simpsons, of course, recognizes uh, Homer's misreading of, uh, of this beautiful <laughs> word that actually means the river of the painted birds. Isn't that nice? That's much nicer than uh, the Simpsons interpretation. Yeah. Um, however, the the Gorani didn't stick around to enjoy it, unfortunately. So actually, the history of the indigenous people in Uruguay is pretty short and uh, not great because there aren't any anymore. Mm. It's the only country in Latin America with pretty much basically zero indigenous population. Some people there have indigenous ancestors, but the culture is gone. But wow. we know that about 10,000 years ago, on. I know, it gets better for everyone else. Was there uh, going away entirely voluntary or was there... Uh, no. Did, did, did the normal stuff happen? <laughs> no. No, the, the, oh. the normal So, to lay the scene. About 10,000 years ago, in um, the sites of Urupes II and Rincón de los Indios, these are two archaeological sites, they found huge amounts of um, lithic artifacts like arrowheads and so on so there's a it's pretty clear that people have been here for a long time hunting Mm. 
what's called mega fauna. Nice. Giant uh, sloths and giant tigers and stuff. I I feel like hunting giant sloths, that's like, that's pretty straightforward. The idea of giant sloths is kind of terrifying, though. I mean... I don't know about you guys. Yeah, it doesn't but do much. The, the temptation's there to hunt them first. I get that. And that's probably why they're gone. Like, all, all those <laughs> giant sloths were pretty delicious. Uh, but they're a distant memory at this stage. <laughs> yeah. That's gone back a long time. It's estimated that um, in the era of, of Uruguay, there was never more than ten to 20,000 people in prehistoric times. They were usually semi-nomadic people. They think that at European contact around 1500, there were about 9,000 people of the Charua ethnicity and 6,000 Guarani. And it's theorised that Charua were kind of driven here by the Guarani in the north about 2000 BC. So the Guarani grouping, we know more about their culture because they actually, I think, continue to live in Paraguay and bits of Argentina, but not in Uruguay anymore. We should probably say just just, just that, uh, just to give people the, an idea of the geography, I guess, I did say in the intro mm. that it's kind of sandwiched between Argentina and Brazil. So, so this is down on the cone of South America. Is that what people call it? The cone? Yeah, the cone, because it's pointy. All right. The Rio de la Plata and the Uruguay River and the Parana River, I think, all flow into this big estuary. You don't want to swim in the Parana River. Definitely not. No. I would not advise that. <laughs> <laughs> and this big estuary is basically the border between... Uruguay and Argentina with Buenos Aires on one side and that's in the south Montevideo in Uruguay on the other and then the north is Brazil and Paraguay so the Gua- the, the Guay in Uruguay and Paraguay is coming from from the people who used to live there and in Paraguay's yeah, case yeah. still do exactly yeah, so cool. that, that means river I think we don't know as much about the Charua because they were native to only Uruguay and they're not around anymore but we know that they hunted ostriches and capybaras and deer and lizards and hare and they did some fishing and they lived in little settlements. They believed in an in a spirit of evil called Gualicho, right. uh, to whom they attributed disease and bad luck. And they practiced magic to, to ward off evil spirits. When someone died, the men punished themselves and the women would cut their fingers, uh, which was a, a thing. Okay. And then they buried the dead and personal belongings were left on the tombs. So it's clear they believed in an afterlife. And in fact, later on, after horses were, in, were introduced, often uh, the owner's horse would be left, would be sacrificed next to the grave or tied up near the grave. We don't know a huge amount, but what little has been learnt uh, is clear that they had a religious system. Um, the Charua, while they're not around anymore, did, did put up a good fight. They were known for their skill as warriors. And the first European to arrive in the whole region of Rio de la Plata, this part of the world, was uh, Juan Díaz de Solis, who was in the pay of the Spanish crown. And he he brought his boat up the, the estuary, uh, landed somewhere near to, somewhere just east of Montevideo, where Montevideo is today. Okay. And um, it was promptly his entire boarding party, uh, or his entire landing party of about 15 people, were within hours killed and eaten. By giant sloths? <laughs> no, by by the locals. <laughs> oh, great. It's a good way to send a message. Uh, the message being, we will eat you. Yeah, what did the rest of his party do? So the people back on the ship, they very quickly went, you know what, this probably, it's not that nice. Uh, and they turned around. Saunter on, basically. And went back to Spain. So that was 1515 uh, 15, and bought uh, Uruguay a little bit of time in the colonization stakes. So I read that there was one boy who wasn't eaten by the cannibals yeah. and that he was later rescued. 
by a guy called Sebastian Cabot. And mm. Sebastian Cabot, he was the son of John Cabot, who is the guy who discovered Newfoundland. Yes, exactly. So that's 10 years later. Uh, I, I read that in some sources and not in others. So I don't know if it's true, but it's a good story. All right. That definitely that there's a, there is this tale of a boy being left behind who, who gets picked up by the next European in the neighbourhood. And Cabot kind of explored the Rio de Plata estuary. The Rio de, Plata is a, Rio de la Plata is a very optimistic name. It's like the River of Silver and there wasn't any silver or gold. So no one's really sure why they called it that other than to attract investigation. Good marketing. Yeah, it's good marketing. Good marketing. Yeah. yeah. But when Europeans do get there, it's the traditional story of influenza, tuberculosis, syphilis, you know, the diseases that didn't exist in, well, they get everywhere. in Latin America before Europeans showed up took a devastating toll on the indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of them either left into less, you know, went inland to safer places or they were killed. Right. So by 1580, Uruguay is run by, by Buenos Aires in this kind of province of Rio de la Plata. So everywhere around the river. And there's a governor in Buenos Aires called Hernandarias. Mm. Um, Hernandarias decides to release cattle into the flatlands of Uruguay because there's loads of grass, big open spaces. He, so he releases cattle and horses and just lets them do their own thing. And they quickly multiply and fill this bountiful land. And at this point, ranchers from Buenos Aires and from modern-day Argentina take an interest in the place as an agricultural opportunity and start ranching these livestock in a very kind of Wild West cowboy sort of way. And this is where the gaucho comes from. Gaucho! The, the, the ponchoed cowboy of, of Latin America. Uh, Hernandarias was the first person born in the Americas to be a governor there, which is kind of cool. So he was a Creole. And during this time, Uruguay was called the Banda Oriental, the eastern bank ah. of the, uh, just of the river, of the river Uruguay. So it wasn't a country, but it was definitely a distinct region. The first settlement in the Banda Oriental was um, a Franciscan mission. So in, in 1624, Santo Domingo Soriano on the Rio Negro is built as the first permanent European settlement in, in the country. This was one of loads of Jesuit and Franciscan missionaries who would kind of build little places to encourage the indigenous people to come and learn about Christianity and learn how to be farmers and how to stay in one place and adapt to modern culture, as it were. The first city was a Portuguese colony. Hmm. Uh, built in 1680 called inventively Colonia <laughs> I'll and, call this land New Land yeah. great or Newfoundland <laughs> uh, and they built this opposite Buenos Aires to kind of stake a claim saying you're not getting yeah. the whole of South America Spain mm. we're taking some of it in response in 1726 Montevideo was founded by the Buenos Aires authorities as a as a city on the other side of the river. This is the capital of modern-day Uruguay, and its name comes from when uh, Magellan's voyage around the tip of South America stopped here. And in Pidgin Portuguese, one of his crew said, Monte Vedeio, which means oh, I nice. see a mountain. Cool. Because there's a really, really nice mountain there. I, th- I thought it was like a creepy thing done by the Argentinians, the, the I see you mountain. Like, <laughs> Vedeo, I see you, Portugal. Hello. <laughs> Uh, anyway, <laughs> I, I, it's a better story. I like that. So, in the Gaucho era, you got growing cities under Spanish rule through Buenos Aires. The natives adapted well to horses, and they they took to ranching their own cattle, but they were never interested in trading. So the Europeans didn't really 
like them being there. They were kind of a nuisance or a threat. I have lots of cattle, but I need all these cattle. You can't yeah. have any. Yeah, they were a symbol of wealth, I think. Uh-huh. Um, so it was basically a cowboys and Indian standoff, but in Uruguay. The Charua used their bolas to great effect. These are a kind of a, a catapult type thing with two stones on a, on a, on a piece of leather. And you just throw them at a moving horse and cripple it. So they they were effective. Uh, it's real simple, guys. Just 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 pick up anything you see lying around and just throw it at a horse. There's a there's a famous epic poem called Tabare that I was told to read, but it's not available in English as far as I can see. Which is all about a love affair between Tabare, a Charua woman, and Blanco. A white guy, <laughs> and um, he's 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 a gaucho, and it's apparently very uh, you know popular for children's plays in school and so on. Then, as we get up to the more modern periods, um, you have about ten thousand people living in Montevideo, and about twenty thousand in the rest of Uruguay. So, pretty imbalanced. It's worth mentioning at this point that that this, this was on the slaving route to Argentina, mm. so every ship landed here, and people bought African slaves from uh, largely Bantu-speaking places like the Congo and uh, the Gambia and places like that. A quarter of the population by 1800 were African slaves working in houses and doing agricultural tasks. Uruguay never really had the plantation type of uh, economy, so... We were, we were kind of chatting about this because when we were looking at it, we were looking at, uh, oh, oh good, slavery, and then... And then we found that it wasn't really such a serious thing in, mm. in, in Uruguay. It wasn't taken up in the same way. And we were even like kind of, our, our, our guesses seem to have been kind of correct, where it just was a different economic model that they had yeah. these gauchos covering you know vast areas uh, and these massive ranches. And that just didn't really fit with the business model of plantations, which well, is you, a bit you, more concentrated. You don't need lots of cheap labor to yeah. herd cattle. You can deal with um, the, the people who are just there already. Uh, you don't mm-hmm. need all the, yeah. the extra manpower. As we'll see later, they they ended slavery just because they needed more more men to fight in a war. Eventually, yeah. I mean, it was it didn't it didn't, didn't seem like long. a big deal. Good clean bloodlust. Yeah, and very quick, very quickly, we get to a point where anyone born in Uruguay by law isn't a slave. So even the children mm. of slaves aren't slaves. So reasonably quickly, slavery vanishes. Uh, and even when slavery was a big thing, there were these me- boarding houses around the different uh, neighborhoods of, of Montevideo called the Soles de Nacion. They were organized into kind of clubs called nations. And that's where there would be religious services and dances and meetings for people of the same linguistic group. Huh. And, and that, that's where the famous candombe music comes from, which is a, an Afro-Uruguayan drumming style of music, which we'll talk about again later because it's really central to um, Uruguayan musical culture. I think even the name Candombe I read came from a Bantu word. Almost almost certainly, I, I don't know. And then just the final thing um, to talk about before, before things get real interesting is that the British briefly took an interest in this nascent colony. Hello! In 1807. They briefly took an interest in almost <laughs> yeah. everywhere, I feel like. Where haven't we conquered uh, yet? South America? Where, where do we not have a colony? Yeah. Uh, wasn't there a study that showed that there was only like four countries in the world that never had the British invade them? Something bizarre <laughs> like that. Mm. Every, every, it is just a point in a country's life where the British turn up and are like, hello, can yep. I have your things, please? The British are coming. That's Ooh. what we're learning. You're a bit yeah. foreign, aren't you? Oh, yeah, etc. I can make that joke because I live here. That's true. So it's, it's during the Napoleonic Wars. 
Uh, Spain and Britain are on the opposite sides. So Spain are teamed mm. up with Napoleon at this point. Super teamed. Uh, super team. The, the Franco-Spanish forces are defeated at Trafalgar, which has a lovely square in London. Um, I, I assume that's where the battle took place. A big naval battle in the middle of London. Uh, yep. That, so that, that, that lines up. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not what... Anyway. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll agree to differ. Uh, I have my and, history. You have yours. Yeah, the British kind of saw Spain was weak. It didn't have much of an navy anymore, so they couldn't communicate with South America. They went, you know, Rio de la Plata looks nice. Let's uh, let's take that. They occupied Buenos Aires for 46 days, and then they were expelled. Then they went, Montevideo, yeah, I'll take that, which they did. 6,000 professional soldiers under Sir Samuel Auchmuti, I, I think. <laughs> It took the city... Aukmuti. That, that, that's got to be one of our best best names so far, I guess, for this podcast. It's a good, it's a good name. Aukmuti. Fair enough. We're, we're, collecting, we're collecting names. We're collecting uh, many, many glorious names. <laughs> he took it in about uh, two days, but it was fiercely defended by the citizen soldiers. Garrison, about 5,000 just regular folk fighting. But they breached the walls and they went in and lost a lot of people, but they, they took the city. And fun uh, Irish connection, the Royal Irish Fusiliers were the kind of secondary force and they were meant to wait at the San Pedro gate until the other people opened it and let them in but they got impatient so they scaled the walls and they captured a flag of Montevideo which is currently on display in the Regimental Museum in Armagh in Northern Ireland. And they thus became the first Irish people to be early for anything ever. (laughs) (laughs) And Alcmuti commended General Ruiz Huidobro for his spirited defence of the city which I'm sure... Ruiz was very grateful for. All right. Cheers. They then tried to take Buenos Aires again and got completely slaughtered. So they um, signed a treaty and left. And at this point, Spain and England were actually on the same side against Napoleon because Napoleon had just stolen Spain. So, uh, you know. I I read how the guy who was like pushing this campaign, the guy who was leading the campaign, was the the situation was, it was was kind of, I think like a semi-privateer. And it was like, if you win, well done. If you lose, we've never heard of you. All the best. That was that was basically the way the, the British looked at it. Yes, that, that's, uh, that's that. So against the backdrop of all this is Jose Gervasio Artigas. He, he was uh, born in 1764, born in Montevideo. His family were uh, children of the Spanish Empire. Uh, I think one of his parents or grandparents was from the Canaries and another uh, was from Buenos Aires. He didn't really take to his religious schooling. And I quote, his ardent spirit did not agree with the contemplated life nor with physical inaction. Um, so he ran off from his well-to-do family and became a, a gaucho. Hey. Yeah, not, not just a gaucho, but a, a criminal gaucho because he got uh, done for cattle rustling. So as you were saying, Joe, the, the Anglo-Spanish War happened, which is you know a bit of Napoleon, a bit of French Revolutionary. It's going on for a very long time. It was like 12 years it went on for. And now some of the locals were worried that with Spain no longer really being functional, that the British are going to turn up uh, sooner or later, and you know, with good reason, as it turns out. Um, so they recruit José Carvazio Artigas. He is pardoned. Uh, his family negotiated on his behalf. And he joins the army with 100 men as a lieutenant. And he fights throughout this whole period. He helped root the British out of Buenos Aires. When they captured Montevideo, they were eventually pushed out. The British soldiers, uh, just a detail I I read, when they were taking Montevideo this time, they formed something called a Forlorn Hope. Oh, I've seen that. Ever heard of that? It's like a suicide squad or a... It's a suicide squad, yeah. yeah. And the, the French apparently call it Les Enfants Perdus. 
Um, okay. And the, the deal is, grim. like, you guys are all going to die, but on the off chance any of you guys don't, we'll make you officers. That's huh. that's the deal. Those who survive are promoted. But it's basically like, <laughs> best of luck, lads. You're you're done for. Can I borrow a fiver? You know, <laughs> like it's it's uh, this is the end for you turkeys. But uh, so he was captured when the British took uh, Montevideo, but uh, he escaped and fled to fight with uh, the guerrillas, the the guerrillas with a U, uh, in the in the mountains, and then basically he vanishes into the countryside. Quite a few times, Artigas ends up going into rurality and there's this urban uh rural divide in in uruguay mm, which is massive. is now maybe switched i think now it's sort of dominance being in montevideo but back then montevideo was a very small uh a, fr- a fraction really of the of the population so the real power was out in out in the rurality that's where the money was that's where the agriculture was that's where the cows and the sheep were so that's where you know that's where the money was now, Artigas is best known for the Oriental Revolution. Mm-hmm. So Artigas gets a little bit of support from Buenos Aires, which is now its own its own country. Uh, it's not really, I don't think it's really called Argentina at this stage. Yeah, but they've, they've kind what, of pulled away from Spain as Spain doesn't really have a government. Yeah, they're a rogue city, apparently. But it, I think it is they, they, they claimed they were loyal Argentina. to the king, but the king was in a prison somewhere in France. Ah, nice workaround. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they, they weren't loyal to the, the Spanish puppet government. So Montevideo was still run by Spain officially, but Artigas has, has designs on that. He crosses uh, crosses the river and makes the cry of Asensio. It's, it's basically a declaration of, of independence, a declaration yeah. of, you know, uh, their intentions. So basically he starts capturing village after village. He, remember, was a, a gaucho before, so everybody gets him and he gets he gets the rurality so he gets their support really really quickly uh the new spanish head in montevideo is a guy called elio um and he sends along one of artigas's relatives to you know ask him to come back to the spanish crown all will be forgiven and artigas is so disgusted he sends his own relative down to buenos aires as a prisoner uh so he besieges montevideo uh with the help of uh buenos aires but things start to fall apart pretty quickly. Montevideo had a navy, which was keeping them supplied, so the siege didn't really work. Uh, and then the Brazilians agreed to help Montevideo and started attacking Buenos Aires as well. So eventually Buenos Aires signs a truce with Brazil. Artigas loses his support. The siege didn't work. And he's up the up the creek without a paddle. Is, isn't there some aspect of this, or is, tell me if this comes later, but isn't there some aspect of this where he's a, a federalist and his opponents are kind of, they want a single country and he wants a Rio de la Plata where all the different regions have autonomy. Yeah, that, that, that's kind of later on. I mean, it, it, that, that happens, but he probably was keen in it at this stage. So he maybe mm-hmm. was talking about that. He maybe was a federalist. And that kind of comes to pass very briefly. Okay. So the, the next thing was the Oriental Exodus. He basically vanishes into, you know, into the forest like Colonel Kurtz. Uh, there's a £6,000 bounty on his head, dead or alive. Buenos Aires sends two armies after the guy, and both armies apparently mutiny and join Artigas. Because <laughs> uh, he gets them. That's, wow. That's what you want, yeah. Um, so We've come to take you, but I'm really cool. You are really cool. So I'm going to take uh, take a pause from Artigas and his uh, his mania to talk about uh, William Brown, uh, William Guillermo Brown. Not a very Spanish name. In Argentina, there are more than 1,200 streets named after this guy. He was born in 1777 in Mayo. That sounds more like it, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. He's, he's William Brown from Mayo. 
uh, and he moved to South America as a merchant sailor, and he was involved in all these wars uh, with the Spanish as well. He sided with Buenos Aires uh, because the Spanish sunk his boat, and during a, a land attack, apparently he ordered the fife and drum to play St. Patrick's Day in the morning, which, uh, according to him at least, acted as a real boost among the troops. I can't imagine they knew what they were listening to, though. There, there is some, like, there's a letter I read of his where he takes this uh, island in Uruguay and basically he, like, he almost destroyed his army doing it. And he sends this really kind of, like, snippy letter to Buenos Aires saying, look, I've got the bloody island, all right? Just don't lose it or do anything stupid with it. He's, he's quite, uh, I don't know, he doesn't seem like uh, he's in a good mood that the day he wrote that. Uh, and he has a huge grave in Buenos Aires that is green and replicas of his sword are worn by the Argentine Navy and are present in the Irish Maritime Museum. So just a mm. little little bit about that guy. Um, okay, back to Artigas. He's he's in the forest. Uh, he's, gone, he's gone native. And he organizes something called the Liga de los Pueblos Libres, which is kind of what you were talking about, Joe. It's like a new country, but like a federal country. And it's divided into little sections. Yeah. It's pretty amazing that he managed to do that, actually, from, you know, his little forest hideout in 1815 he manages to push the argentinians out of montevideo he knows who his friends are and uh, gives land confiscated from the enemies to his allies but he apparently also gives them to some of the, the the natives and the mestizo as well so you know good on him the portuguese didn't like any of this and eventually invaded uh artigas loses the plot a bit and despite he he should really have been concentrating on fighting the portuguese he gets pissed off at the uh the people in buenos aires as well and attacks them too so currently uruguay is at war with uh, argentina and brazil terrible idea argentina like isn't really a thing but it's becoming a thing yeah the thing that argentina will eventually become yeah so montevideo falls in 1817 and he goes back with the guerrillas and it doesn't really work out. He has to flee to Paraguay where he remains for 30 years. Just uh, chilling out there. Uh, another Irish connection is this guy that we both found, Joe. Uh, oh, Peter yeah, Campbell. Yeah. yeah, from Tipperary, was he? Uh, Tipperary, I think, yeah. Uh, mm. Born in 1780. He enlisted in the 71st Highland Regiment and came over with the British, but he stayed. He was one of the soldiers who managed to remain in River Plate. He joined the Patriot Patriot ranks, is how it was phrased, slightly awkwardly. So Artigas's people. Yeah, basically. He became a guerrilla leader. Uh, he, ra- he harassed the Spanish forces. Um, the one thing, he became basically the, the, the first head of the Uruguayan Navy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was this one cool thing I, I, I liked a lot, that he used to charge the enemy really, really quickly with a poncho wrapped around one arm as a shield uh, and a huge long knife. He carried two riding pistols, a saber, and there was also a Tipperary-born gaucho with him called Don Eduardo. Uh, so <laughs> make of that what you will. Um, Why is that not that a movie? not a traditional Irish name. I'd watch that. So what he would do is he'd charge the enemy at great speed on horseback and then leap off the horse and then fire uh, volleys of rifle rounds. So that was his big strategic move, uh, just like chasing people and shooting them. Wow. That was basically the, the major strategic uh, innovation he brought to brought to proceedings. It really, like, it, it's weird that the father of the Argentine and the father of the Uruguayan Navy were both Irish fellas. Yeah. An, our, an island not particularly known for its uh, naval prowess. We suck. Uh, we, well, we just export our best, you know. Yeah. So Artigas loses. Uh, Uruguay gets incorporated uh, into Brazil. But there's still quite a few, you know, former Artigas rebels 
they mm-hmm. there's a revolution called the the 33 easterners the uh, 33 mm. orientales they're led by juan antonio la Vella. they raise an army they take back montevideo they declare allegiance to argentina kind of uh, and start a war between brazil and argentina called the cisplantine war the argentina brazil war so it's like there's a lot of wars guys it's just it's just it's just consistent war so for three years uh brazil and argentina are at war uh brazil have a great navy the argentinians have a great army neither of which have a conclusive victory because one bosses the seas one bosses the land and eventually viscount ponsonby great name and if you can guess where he's from uh, I'll give you a shiny penny. He is an Irish MP, Viscount Ponsonby. He brokers the truce on behalf of Britain. Like, like yeah, he's 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 British, yeah. Irish British, but he is there as the honest broker between Argentina and Brazil. Just because the British were annoyed they couldn't trade with anyone because of all of this war. So yeah, they, uh, and, so and hey I think guys, 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 you know, just and, chill out. Just and the Brazilians didn't really have a great army to push back and the Argentinians mm. didn't have a great navy to to push back. So they were kind of stuck there. And as a result of their, you know, mutual helplessness in specific ways, they'd agree that, okay, neither of us will have it. There'll be a place called Uruguay. It'll be its own country. It'll be a republic. And eventually the constitution's approved on July 18th, 1830. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a republic. It's Uruguay and from here on. General Jose Fructuoso Rivera brings in this first, con- he's the first president under this new constitution. And the vice president is uh, Colonel Sucrose. Uh, uh, that that is my sugar-based joke. Not not true at all. They <laughs> <laughs> sound like um, characters you find on the on the front of a cereal box. I was thinking, box. yeah, like they're they're like bad guys in a cartoon about dentistry. There's uh, just before we forget about it, guess There's a guy on on Reddit. We put a, a a call out on the Uruguay subreddit for kind of you know local input. And a guy called Quarkman the Hero, I assume that's his legal name, okay. uh, made a wonderful comment. Like, Artigas is considered the national hero of a country. He didn't want created and went against almost everything he believed in. So, um, Fair enough. I th- think so he will be spinning in his, in his grave. In Paraguay. Uh, <laughs> So we have a independent Uruguay and sugar sugar based uh, military leaders. What 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 do we got next, Joe? Unfortunately, um, by eighteen thirty one, there were only about five hundred Charua people left in Uruguay through war and disease and in intermarrying and so on. And the the new president kind of decided it was time to uh, to finish the job, which is a pity. So uh, the the it didn't really come up, but the, the Charua did fight with Artigas as he led his bands of gauchos and rural people. And the, the native um, people were also in on that coalition of changing how the country was run. I saw that mention that he was, he was granting land to some of the natives. So yeah, that, that yeah. makes sense that he was rewarding them for fighting on his side. Yeah. And and this is the period when being born, anyone born in Uruguay was considered not a slave. So this is a time of kind of trying to bring everyone to a similar level, at least in theory. Yes, yeah, so the, there was a big group of Charua people. Doesn't sound like a big group, Joe. 500 yeah. people. Well, no, like a... <laughs> Relatively big, percentage-wise. Mo- most yeah. of them. Most of the remaining ones. Yeah. They were camping near a place called Salsipuedes, which uh, ironically means leave if you can. Oh, God. In Spanish. 
And um, a relative of the president who was in the army invited the these Charua warriors and their families to come to Salsipueda. They set up camp there, they exchanged gifts with the army officers, and then they went to sleep for the night. About 340 men, women, and children. And then... Um, and then they woke up and everything was fine. No. An army of 1,200 soldiers attacked oh. them in the morning, killing about 40 of the warriors and capturing the remaining people who were then force-marched to Montevideo, where they either died on the way or they were enslaved. And by 1840, there were only 18 surviving Charua in the whole of Europe. Right. Wow. So that's kind of when indigenous history ends. So I kind of took a dislike to um, to President Rivera, yeah, which is his mm. surname. So from this, and so I was, I was, I was happy when in 1835 he loses the presidency to General Manuel Oribe, who was one of the the 33 Orientals or whatever you call them, those patriotic fellas. Just a year later, Rivera comes back with a revolutionary movement. He uh, starts attacking. Uruguay and tried to take over bits of Uruguay but Oribe has the the support of Argentinian troops from mm. Buenos Aires uh, and so Rivera is defeated at um, the Battle of Carpinteria but he's not done yet in, in June 1838 he amasses this army which are called the uh, Colorado Army because they wear red ribbons on their uh, oh, hats yeah. and on their so they were the, the, the coloured army and they um, and these guys will be pretty important. They uh, will forever going forward. I yeah, guess. yeah. Uh, and they deposed Uribe's Blanco army, who wore white ribbons on their uniforms. Mm-hmm. And they took the, the Colorados under Rivera, who I still don't like. Uh, they come back and take Montevideo. Uribe goes into exile in Buenos Aires, and then there's an election, and Rivera's re-elected. For for all that matters, yeah. Given he's now just had a coup, but you know he won the election, so fair play. Uh, it was a kind of a preemptive taking of the city in advance of his election. So the, this is where the two big political parties that dominate Uruguay for the next 150 years come from. The Colorado Party and the Blanco Party, which later gets renamed the National Party. So they're mm. kind of the liberal and the conservative, essentially. Yeah, so Colorados are the are the liberal side and uh, the Blancos They're usually are the... considered liberal Republicans, where the, the Blancos are more... Yeah. Um, Socially conservative and traditionalist, yeah. but you you showed it quite well. They came from there were armies first, there were mobs first, yes, yeah, and yeah. parties afterwards. Like a party was only a small part of these things. They really were just like almost arbitrary factions. But there was an urban rural thing as well. So oh, the, for sure, the, for the sure. Blancos had a lot of rural support, and the Colorados were more of an urban. But I read that within each of these like massive amorphous coalitions, there were groups that were more more liberal and more uh, conservative, more extreme and more mainstream. And that maybe at certain points, one aspect became more uh, identifiable with them. But they kind of they were just really like literally one team is red, one team is white. Go for it. No, definitely at this point, it's it's a a personality yeah, allegiance yeah, yeah. and an urban rural thing and then Argentinian Brazilian we should also note that the population of Uruguay around this time was only about 60,000 yeah. people right. out of which 15,000 lived in Montevideo so you still have that kind of dominance of the of the yeah. rural region and uh, the Blancos would have had more support like in terms of from the population leading into the civil war I guess the armies were usually no more than a few thousand yeah. people yeah. on each side so it's not we're not talking about like hundreds of thousands or t- even tens of thousands yeah. of people 
Yeah, and in um, the 1840s, yeah. slavery was abolished completely in the areas controlled by both the Blancos and the Colorados, basically to... Swell their ranks. Swell their ranks. They kind of said, hey, you're free now. You want to be in the yeah. army? Mm. Uh, pays good. Pays good compared to being a slave. And the gratitude uh, was so. being traded on. We freed you. Fight for us. Uh, and die for us also. Weirdly, a lot of the fighting happened in Argentinian territory because mm. uh, there was kind of a larger dispute between Juan Manuel de Rosas, who was sort of a dictator, strongman leader. Of Argentina, Joe. Uh, of Argentina, yeah. And there was an upstart group of unitarists who wanted like a less federal Argentina. And Rivera backed the Unitaris, and he actually fought Rosas a bit, driving his forces out of Uruguay. And then Oribe fought, had some victories over the Colorados. Eventually, the Blancos are besieging President Rivera in, in Montevideo with the help of the Argentinian government. And this is, leads to, between 1843 and 51, the Guerra Grande, the, the Long War, mm. which is like a nine-year siege of Montevideo. Uh, French author Alexandre Dumas, famous author of uh, The Three Musketeers, described it as being the new Troy. I think he actually wrote a book called The oh, New oh, Troy. Oh, really? Okay. Wonderful. Uh, about about this siege, I believe. Seemingly endless. Yeah, so you have at this time Oribe and the Blancos, who had their rural support just besieging the city. And then you have Rivera, Colorado, uh, besieged within Montevideo, yeah, correct? Yeah, and the Blancos have Argentinian support and the Colorados have Brazilian support. And also the British were allowing Montevideo to be supplied from the sea. So they weren't, they were besieged, but they weren't starving. Which always helps in a siege. Then you get, there's a period of a lot of confusion where France and Britain get involved. It becomes kind of an international war. They just wanted free navigation along the uh, Rio Parana and the Rio de Uruguay. So they, they didn't really have a horse in the race. They just wanted... To keep trading. Yeah, yeah. anyone who gives them access to trading was, was their friend. So in 1845, these their navies temporarily blocked the Buenos Aires port, trying to limit Argentinian influence. Then their fleets protected the Montevideo by sea, as we've already said. French and Italian legionaries, weirdly led by Giuseppe Garibaldi, fought for I the Colorados. I did see his name, and I yeah. didn't know why he was there. So he's a, a really significant figure in unifying Italy, uh, maybe a decade or two later. And I, I started re- reading about him, and it mentioned ragamuffins, and I never... <laughs> He was part of some conflict or some group called the Ragamuffins, ah. and that's where the phrase comes from, apparently. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Uh, who, who knew? A bunch of Ragamuffins. He clearly got around. Uh, in 1850, the Europeans are just fed up, and they sign a treaty with um, the Argentinian dictator and leave. And now Montevideo is expected to fall because Uribe is supported by the Argentinian dictator. Yeah. They expect the Blancos to just kind of overwhelm the city, right? Yeah. And then... Surprise! Uh, there's Twist. a mad uprising in the Argentinian province of Entre Rios against dictator Rosas, uh, which completely changes the, the playing field. Uribe's forces are it's a whole defeated. new ball game now. Uribe's forces are are nearby and they're defeated by these this uprising led by Jose de Urquiza, and basically Uruguay is left in clear uh, Colorado control. Yeah, the Colorados don't have anybody else to oppose them. So they've got the country. And at this point, Brazil intervened on their side with money and a navy, which I I've, I feel they left it late. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see your enemy's army's been defeated. Would you, would you like some naval support? Uh, like a lot of countries in World War II, they declaring war in Germany in 1945 kind of thing. Like Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, yeah. I was going to point out, it's exactly what yeah, Uruguay did, <laughs> is they joined the Allies in 1945. So... 
you know. And then they signed some treaties with Brazil, making sure that runaway slaves who went looking for freedom in Uruguay would, would go go back to Brazil. So that, that was nice. And also ensuring that there'd be very, they'd be allowed to navigate on the various rivers. There was some territorial disputes cleaned up. So Brazil did well out of this. Um, and this kind of cements Colorado control of Uruguay for the foreseeable future, basically. There's just so many coups and revolutions and invasions. <laughs> and it's, it's exhausting. It is exhausting. Well, let's let's take a quick break here and we will come back. I am exhausted. With, uh, the Uruguayan War. Yeah, Mark is already exhausted and he hasn't even started <laughs> into this yet. So uh, we'll, t- we'll, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back just after this. just emerged from sort of a a bunch of different territorial disputes a bunch of different wars against different factions of uruguayan the uruguayan population so surely there's some peace coming up next mark right not at all no so in a pretty encouraging move the the colorados the blancos uh kind of came together and formed something called uh the fusionists which was basically them trying to you know cooperate a little bit because for so long they'd just been uh fighting with each other when I read about it, it, it sounded like almost like Afghanistan or something like that. But the, the, there was these guys called Caudillos. Mm, kind of and they were basically... Warlords. The, yeah, yeah. The, exactly that. They were warlords. They're, like, they were the local head honcho. They had a, a armed gauchos who would, you know, uh, farm their land for them. But they would also get them to, hey, go over and shoot that guy's gauchos. And they would. And that was, that's like, that was at the base level what all of this stuff happened. And then, you know... One Caudillo would be a Blanco and one Caudillo would be a Colorado and they would fight and yada, yada, yada. And it would just go on like this. There was these fusionists and they were trying to cooperate and making the best of it. But not everybody loved this idea. Uh, In particular, we have got this guy, Venancio Flores. There was a, a minor rebellion and the fusionists put it down pretty hard with a lot of executions and it, it kind of turned feeling against them. Flores, he didn't really like the Blancos anyway. He was a Colorado and uh, he really pushed for a rebellion. He secured some Argentinian support for this, including uh, getting Argentina's Navy to help move his men to Uruguay, starting the Liberating Crusade. Good name. Uh, yeah, it was pretty good. And all the locals flocked to him, especially a disenfranchised and generally pissed off Colorados. Uruguay, in turn, was pretty tight with Paraguay uh, at this point. Uh, in Paraguay's opinion, this is a quotation, the idea of reconstructing the old vice royalty is in the soul of the Argentines. And as a result, it isn't just Paraguay that needs to stand guard. Your country, the Oriental Republic of Uruguay, needs to get along with my own in order to prepare for any eventualities. Mm. Brazil was the major power in the area at this point uh, and had been trying to kind of keep Argentina weak and Uruguay weak. They were kind of financing opposition in both countries. Like They, they don't want competition, basically. Also, a lot of Uruguayans on the border felt more Brazilian than Uruguayan. I mean, Uruguay is this huge, flat, empty space with loads of rivers, loads of cattle, and the borders weren't very hard. It's not super well populated. Not so much passport control in the 1860s. Exactly, yeah. So the people near Brazil felt a bit more Brazilian. Fair enough. So the Brazilians kind of, for for quite a few different reasons, decided they wanted to, eh, you know, 
get stuff going a little bit. They thought that the the British were going to be competing with them soon, so they wanted to kind of, you know, flex their muscles a little bit, and they started setting ultimatums for the Blancos. Uh, I couldn't find what those ultimatums were. They just, you know, stand in your head, uh, sing, I'm a friendly <laughs> daisy, uh, all those things. And the Blancos basically told them to piss off. Yeah. So the, the Blancos at this stage have have told Brazil to piss off, their enemies have sided with Argentina, and they kind of have a little bit of help from Paraguay. So it, this is about to get really, really complicated with a lot of a lot of everybody invading everybody else. So just just bear with me. In 1864, Brazil attacks with their navy menacing Uruguayan coastal cities and chasing away Uruguayan troop ships. By October 1864, uh, the Colorados and Brazil are now in full alliance, like openly so. The Brazilian army was supposedly well-equipped and well-financed, and, you know, the Brazilian army is a big country. But really, the Colorado troops were doing a lot of the fighting. Uh, the Blancos got some reinforcements in, in this battle, the siege of Paysandu. But uh, there was one detail which I read about, a savage execution of POWs. Gomez, who was the Blanco leader in that area, he beheaded 40 Colorados and 15 Brazilian prisoners and hung their, oh. and hung their still dripping heads above his trenches in full view of the compatriots. That's just unnecessary. <laughs> so remember, Paraguay is friends with the Blancos. So Paraguay invades Brazil. Brazil starts to flood Uruguay with troops uh, and we're poised to take Montevideo. But Uruguay then kind of a little bit starts to invade Brazil, uh, sending troops in the other direction, trying to distract them with conflicts there. See, see how you like it now. Huh? A little bit. So the head of the Blancos was eventually replaced because he was a maniac. And he was replaced by the 20th president of Uruguay, Tomás Villalba, who served for only five days. And he was really only there to just keep the more maniac fringes of his group at bay until the head of the Colorados, Venancio Flores, he could be appointed president. He then purged the Blancos from office and was a very friendly guy towards Brazil hereafter. And yeah, from, from here on, it is Colorado's as far as the eye can see, easily up until the 1920s and, and well beyond. This weird everybody invading everybody and, and so on conflict basically kicked off the Paraguayan War. Now, what, what I just described was called the Uruguayan War, but was quite... Small. One of many. Well, it, yeah, it was a Uruguayan war, but it was very much small potatoes. <laughs> the Paraguayan war that it kicked off was a bloodbath. 400,000 people dead. Wow. It basically destroyed Paraguay as a country. But this is just to, I guess, explain that this Uruguayan war happened, but afterwards everyone was so distracted by the Paraguayan war that nobody really cared what happened in Uruguay after that. It just seemed like, ugh, who cares? That was that was just the thing that led to the Paraguayan War. It wasn't really a big deal in and of itself. So going on from here, this frustrated me a lot because this is kind of nuts. In February 1868, two former presidents, one a Blanco and one a Flores, were assassinated on the same day. But Bernardo Bero and Venancio Flores were both assassinated on the same day. By who? And I couldn't... I don't know. It said a group of strangers. <laughs> I couldn't find anything on it. I was looking everywhere. I was searching in Spanish. I couldn't find a damn thing. Now, I guess probably Brazil or probably Argentina. I put up a thing in Reddit saying, like, guys, even any theories, any wild conspiracy theories you want to give me? They're all the same, sure. You're politicians, you know. They're all the same. Well, they killed both former presidents from each side. Yeah. <laughs> the political divide. It was just nuts. Mm -hmm. So going on from, from, uh, from this period... 
The proportion of the immigrant population in Uruguay rose from 48% in 1860 to 68% in 1868. It's so a huge influx of immigrants. Uh, I think a lot of Italians came in around yeah, this time. Some, a, some French Basque, and Spanish as well. Catalan, Italian. Yeah. Decent amount of French, Spanish. So, you, yeah, you get some really interesting surname combinations. So in the same period, 1860 to 1868, the uh, sheep flock uh, goes from 3 million to 17 million, <laughs> uh, which just, you know, it's just an explosion. Uh, sheep explosion. A sheep explosion. A sheep explosion. It's a bad thing. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's amazing. Sorry, couldn't resist. Uh, well... <laughs> In the in the development mix, we have all of these things happening that kind of progress Uruguay along with other modern countries. Gas services initiated in 1853, First Bank in 1857, sewage works in 1860, Telegraph in 1866, railroads in 1869, running water in 1871. That's always nice. So basically, stuff is improving pretty fast in Uruguay. Uh, and lots more people are coming in. There are like little kind of rebellions and stuff, but frankly, I'm not going to go into them. There's just loads of them. and None of them know. really changed the course of history. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, from 1870 to 1872, there's the Revolution of the Lances, which is basically named after people, you know, sellotape and knives to the end of a stick, as was the style at the time. There was the Tricolor Revolution in 1875. In 1876, the government's overthrown. The revolution of Quebracho in 1886. Another assassination attempt. President Santos was shot in the face. The guy from the West Wing. Uh, yep, that guy, Jimmy Smith. Good guy. Uh, Jimmy Smith was shot in the face in 1886 in Uruguay. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Uh, moving on, we've got another presidential mishap. Uh, this was President Diarte, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Assassinated in 1897. The only president ever to be fully, properly assassinated while in office. Avelino Arredondo, claiming to have acted alone, he was convicted of the crime. And Uruguay's population hits 1 million in 1900. Yeah. So, yeah, it's in it's in decent shape. Economy's doing pretty well. Little revolutions, but yeah, we, we got ourselves a Uruguay. All right. We're going to get into the founder of modern Uruguay, I guess, which is a pretty nice place. Jose Bache e Ordonez, most commonly called Jose Bache. We, we, we think we've got that right. We think we got the pronunciation <laughs> right. We, we debated a lot over it. Do you want to spell it? It is uh, spelled B-A-T-L-L-E. So looks a lot like battle, except with a T removed uh, and an yep. L added. So um, postcards with phonetic pronunciation guides are, are welcome as always. Yes. So we're going to go with Bache. So if we're wrong, apologies is going to be wrong all the way through. <laughs> eat it, pedants. Eat it up. So this guy was the son of a former president of Uruguay and was very much engaged in politics from a young age. He came from the Colorado tradition. He was a very socially progressive guy. In 1879, he leaves university without having obtained a degree. Never uh, achieve anything. Because he is so, apparently so annoyed, so frustrated at, at the way that Uruguay is being governed at the time and goes to Paris uh, in self-imposed uh, partial exile. And returns after 17 months penniless and impoverished. Uh, <laughs> he is, was. He isn't was, that just a gap year? Like, yeah. Basically, yeah. I, I think. Yeah. I think oh, disillusioned uh, with the world. I'm going to Paris to spend all my money. Uh, and I don't think you can yeah. call it exile. I don't think anybody necessarily cared. Like, he went to Paris. He probably, <laughs> like, Benjamin Franklin I, style, I said, whored about. Uh, and, Self-imposed you know, exile. And went which, to art which galleries. You could say if you, you know, I guess if you, that's yeah. just leaving. So that's not. <laughs> that's just leaving exactly. <laughs> yeah. So he he comes back to Uruguay and decides to become a journalist. 
speaking out against the establishment and the, the kind of dictatorial figures that are ruling Uruguay at the time. Uh, 1886, he founds his own newspaper, El Dia, which would go on to print articles from many, many uh, prominent Uruguayan politicians over the next maybe 100 years or so. I think I looked into it. This this newspaper closed in, I think, the 1990s. 1993, yeah. But a lot of important people were editors over over that century. Yeah, it was kind of like a mouthpiece. He used the paper as a political platform for himself, uh, criticizing his opponents and promoting his own agenda. And then shortly after founding the paper, a couple of years afterwards, he joins the Colorado Party as Maximo Santos uh, flees into exile. Good riddance to him. <laughs> yeah, he vows to clean up the party and to reorient it, to reshape it in his own in his own vision. Just to say, Luke, the, the newspaper thing is interesting. Uruguay is one of the most literate countries in, in Latin America and in, indeed much of the mm. world at this point. So like everyone was reading newspapers. So having yeah, so having one to promote your ideology was really relevant. Uh, you know, if I found a newspaper today, no one would care. Yeah. Yeah. But this is a really engaged population. I was reading about some of the, the modern presidents as well. None of them, you know, massively interesting. But I did see journalists popping up mm-hmm. quite a lot, which is quite unusual for presidents. But it does seem to be quite common there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so in 1887, he runs for the Chamber of Deputies and loses in a rigged vote. But in 1890, he is elected as a deputy in the Salto Department. Uh, The departments, I believe, are just... They're like counties or provinces. There's, I think, nine of them, and that's why there's nine stripes on the flag. Oh, okay. So yeah, he's elected a deputy in the Salto Department, which is in the north of Uruguay. And continues to kind of bash the government. They uh, they don't call him Bache for nothing. Oh, Bache, exactly. Mother of God. (laughs) 1898, then he's elected a senator for Montevideo. In 1902, he is elected president of Uruguay uh, after a clash of ideas that split his party in half. His ideas were very liberal, very socially progressive. His first term was taken up by the 1903-1904 civil war between the Colorados and the Blancos. Didn't know there was another civil war. <laughs> yeah, another civil war. So yeah, that war ended when the leader of the Blancos, Arpaccio Saravia, was ki- shot and killed in battle. That'll do it. He was brought to Brazil, skirted over the border, and lay in agony for 10 days and then died from his wounds. Um, <laughs> right. And that would be... Why would you bother to bring him over the border if you're just going to leave him <laughs> leave him in a hedge? Yeah, oh, it probably wasn't no. the plan. They were uh, trying to treat him, I believe, uh, and couldn't quite save his life. So Is is that the end of civil wars? For, for that America? is the last of the civil wars, okay. uh, thankfully. Sweet. Not the final downfall of the Blanco's party, but it's the last of uh, oh, there's, the they're still around. military. <laughs> they're still about, they just yeah. don't try to overthrow the state anymore. So in 1904, a peace treaty was signed which finally brought stability to Uruguay after all the warring. Yay! Uh, Bache would then go on to serve two non-consecutive terms as president from 1903 to 1907. Uh, He then stepped down and then came back to the presidency in 1911 to 1915. This seems to be a thing in Uruguay. I don't think you're allowed consecutive terms. So it makes reading really, really confusing. Because like, and then there was president this, and then this guy, then he died, and then there was another guy, and then it was the first guy again. (laughs) There's a lot of two-baggers with one one term out in the middle. Uh, that, that happens yeah. twice since uh, 85 as well. Mm, I think the current constitution, yeah. it's it's mandated. I don't know if it was back then. But he was he remained leader of the party for that for that entire period, yeah. and they were obviously the ruling party, the Colorados at the time. Around 1903 to 1915, he took advantage of the peace in the country to institute major reforms. I've got a few of them listed here. 
they will give you an idea of what this guy's sort of political agenda was. In 1905, income tax for lower income workers was abolished. In 1906, secondary schools were established in every city in Uruguay. In 1907, women were granted their right to divorce. In 1915, a telephone network was nationalized. In 19, also in 1915, an eight-hour workday was established as a kind of a federal law. In mm. 1917, Uruguay declared itself a secular republic. So, you know, not influenced by any re one religion, complete separation of church and state. So, mm -hmm. so I think in South America, we're only talking about one religion here. Yeah. No, every, true, everyone's true Catholic. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's just a matter of whether they go to church or not. Interestingly, he also kind of de devolved power from the presidency while he was uh, in power. This was an obsession so of he, his. He 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 had this yeah. whole thing about Switzerland and the um. Well, the Switzerland of, of the, South America with the rotating presidency. It was yeah. So it was often because of this uh, bashism was kind of called Switzerland and South America. And he, he loved this idea of a rotating presidency. So instead of having a president, you have a yeah. a collegial council that rotate the presidency. Yeah. And this was something he seems to have been really, really pushing his whole career. While he was in the office of president, he split power between the president and the National Council mm. of Administration. Is nine people, and I think he put six Colorados and three Blancos. Yeah. So he, you know, he was, he was uh, like an, fine with the, the Blancos having a, a having a voice. Ceding powers to your enemy, uh, yeah. or to your traditional enemy, I guess. Hate this guy. In 1930, the first World Cup is held in Uruguay, which we will talk about later on when we mm -hmm. talk about sports. But uh, Uruguay, spoiler alert, wins that uh, World Cup, which is a great source of national pride. You are great. In 1931, uh, Gabriel Terra, who is a disciple of Bache, was uh, elected president. And just, I, I think, weeks or months just after he takes the presidency, uh, the Great Depression hits. Boom. He basically takes the opportunity. I mean, he's he's also a left-leaning kind of socialist sort of guy, but he realizes that the Great Depression is going to seriously harm the country, you know, no matter what policies he's enacting. Yeah. So he launches sort of what I would describe as kind of a soft coup uh, against the General Assembly. No bloodshed, just pushes them out of power in 1933 and implements a new constitution which gives gives power back to the presidency so he becomes almost like a an anti-bache but yeah, yeah anti-bache despite being a, a, a fan of his ideas he sort yeah. of says i need to i i need to take the reins here he's trying to be like a franklin d roosevelt kind the of. good kind yeah, of dictator yeah uh, kind of benevolent dictator he moves the country more towards a free market model oh okay uh, so that it's more more able to adapt and change to the tides of the the global economy in 1938, he was uh, succeeded by his close political follower and brother-in-law, General Alfredo Baldomir. Baldomir. Do you get the impression reading the history of this country that everyone knows each other? It's it's a pretty small country, uh, Joe. It's there's there's not a lot is, of people yeah. here. It's just like the surnames yeah. and the, the, the keep cropping up. So this leads us into sort of the start of World War II. Then in December 1939, just after the the war starts, is the Battle of the River Plate, which is the first naval battle of World War II. It takes place off the coast of Uruguay. Uh, officially, Uruguay is uh, neutral in the war. This battle takes place just off the coast. It is between a German, uh, what's called pocket battleship, which I think sounds adorable. That sounds cute. Uh, the, <laughs> Admiral Graf Spee. Who were the Germans fighting? The Germans were fighting the British. Oh, okay. Uh, it's World War Two, Joe. <laughs> it's World War II. <laughs> yeah. So okay. These Germans. What's their What's their story? <laughs> are they? Who do they not? Are, like? are, they, are they involved? 
So basically, <laughs> the captain of the Graf Spree, uh, after a skirmish with the British naval forces, orders the ship into the port of Montevideo and believes that he's hopelessly outnumbered by kind of the stronger British Navy and orders his ship to be scuttled in the bay. In the bay. Uruguay then interns more than 1,000 German soldiers and they would remain in Uruguay or Argentina for the remainder of the war. Nice. That was probably a good outcome for them. Yeah, I, I think yeah. it was probably pretty nice. Really good. This Montevideo place is pretty pretty cool. Yeah, it's and like tropical neutral, so. paradise. Nice beaches. Yeah. Uh, not at war. <laughs> not yeah, bad. Yeah. Not bad. Uh, so Uruguay would remain neutral for most of the war, although it did uh, raise the ire of the Nazi government in 1940 for allegedly giving safe harbor to a British ship, uh, which was being pursued by German forces. So you basically have the, the kind of opposite, opposite then happening where a, a, a British ship is seeking uh, protection from Uruguay or, you know, in Uruguayan waters. Uh, and then to add insult to injury, the ship, which was called the HMS Carnivan Castle, was allegedly repaired using uh, metal that was salvaged from the earlier scuttled um, German ship. <laughs> so they sort of took they took parts from the German boat to repair the British British battleship and that, the Germans that would were not too you happy about little. it. Yeah. In 1942 then I believe the the Nazis broke off relations with Uruguay and as I mentioned earlier they did declare war on Germany and Japan on the 15th of February 1945 they formally joined uh the declaration by the United Nations and yeah declared war on the Nazis and uh, the Axis powers for six months for about six months yeah during which there was no real fighting in Uruguay at all so Zero. they you know they steered themselves clear of that one pretty well uh, I think we'll take another quick break here and then we'll lead into the second half of the 20th century we want you to hear we want you to So I believe, Joe, after the Second World War, the Uruguayan economy was in pretty good shape. Uh, yes, supplying, it was. Supplying so the, both sides, correct? This was an era when the unofficial motto of the country was Como el Uruguay no hay. It's like there's no place like Uruguay. Right. They called it the Uruguayan miracle. This country mostly produces beef and salted beef and leather and wool. All things warring armies need. Mm. So World War Two was a boon to the economy. I think they mostly supplied the Allies rather than both sides, but I could be wrong. What I've read seemed to heavily suggest that definitely the, the, the salt beef and the wool and the leather went to the Allies under President Amazaga, who... He's amazing. Ma- amazing an guy. Amazing guy. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> glad we're all on the same wavelength there. Yep. You start to get the equal civil rights for women. There's workers' wage councils founded in various towns where they kind of agree on what they should be paid those sound like they sound good either alternatively well they sound like in one part unions but also like soviets yeah <laughs> yeah sounds like so the, they sounds, kind of played with ideas and in, in, in weird mixtures that you wouldn't expect yeah but in a non-evil non-killy kind of way yes for the most part. less gulags but lots of worker oh. workers wage councils uh, and family assistance was brought good. in it was a good time in 1946 Thomas Beretta was elected and he was a prominent uh, Bashist. So he believed in the, the mission of, um, of Jose Basha. But he died really quickly. He was, he was real old as well. So they, that probably contributed to his death. 
Uh, I'm just imagining that, like, that his doctor is saying that he, like, he died. Yeah, but come on. <laughs> What's it going to do with that? Silk Purse says, you guys. Yeah, he's real old. Real old. He, I think he only did five months of the job. And then his vice president, Luis Basha Perez, was chosen to succeed him. What was that name? What was that name? Luis Basha Perez. Basha? Yeah. Basha again? Yeah, it's a, he's his ah. nep- the nephew of Jose Basha. Great. He was much more liberal uh, than Basha's sons, actually. So the, the sons still controlled El Dia, where um, Basha Perez, he surrounded himself with kind of young ideological politicians. He was very concerned about the, the populist authoritarian regimes sweeping around Latin America, like uh, uh, like yeah. Peron in Argentina. Yeah. Uh, he didn't like the look of communism. He just didn't like the look of those regimes. He wanted to go a, a different way. He created this kind of multi-class movement where he brought in the workers and the students and the landowners and the businessmen. And he tried to get everyone kind of working towards a common goal. And the state's role was to safeguard social peace and to to correct any unfair differences uh, in, in quotation marks. So not to um, prop up unprofitable things and not to, to overly tax people who made stuff, but to sort of make sure it wasn't, didn't get out of, out of kilter. One great, great advantage was that the, the British had some outstanding debts from World War Two. Very nice. From uh, beef debts, as, as they were. <laughs> oh, guys, uh, while we're on it, my beef debts are crippling. Uh, <laughs> I, I I, owe, you know, half my personal, half of my vast personal wealth to uh, beef vendors around the local township. <laughs> and, you know, if, if, if any listeners can help me with my beef debt, uh, I, I have a GoFundMe uh, with a picture of me <laughs> weeping beside a side of beef. Uh, with my my pockets inside out as I as I glare into the horizon, if, wondering what happens tomorrow. If you were the British Empire, you would have had some railroads and water companies in Uruguay to, to trade for a like, like monopoly sort of. You kind of go, well, I can't pay my rent, but here's here's a Charing Cross station. You can take the railroad. Yeah, here's a bag of carrots. Yeah. Uh, so they nationalised these British built railroads and water companies to pay for the beef. So that was a big kind of economic uh, shot in the arm. There was resistance, obviously, to this uh, movement by conservative elements like the Rural Federation, led by Benito Nardone. He was a a prominent anti-communist radio show host and other anti-communists. What? Yeah, it was kind of anti-communist radio. It was big. Okay. Of its time, I guess. It's the the 50s. Well, the 40s. If you're not going to oppose communism then, when will you? I'll never oppose communism. I love communism. That's great. <laughs> and they didn't listen to the IMF who recommended a bit of austerity. Um, because who wants to? I'd like to drop in here a clip from the US Office of Inter-American Affairs where they have this really hokey um, documentary about like a, a middle-class Montevidean family. And um, there's, some interesting, there's some interesting ideas in here. While Mother is at the movies, you might want to look in on Father at the warehouse where he is a wool broker. He trades in the shipment of wool and skin from the big sheep ranches of the Uruguayan interior to textile mills in North and South America. He is proud of the fact that one of his recent consignments was to the Army of the United States. The Garvisa firm is one of many such small warehouses in the same district, each employing 10 or 15 clerks and handlers. Senor Garvisa is one of a large economic group comprising small owners and tradesmen government clerks, and many other white-collar workers. 
Back in the house, the little servant girl, Bella, is mopping the tile floor. Bella was the one too many of a large, poor country family. She makes her home here, receives a small allowance, is already an excellent servant, and lives a dull but apparently satisfactory life. Because the family possesses a variety of household appliances, like this vacuum cleaner, Bella's work is a little harder than that of a similar housemaid in the United States. It is interesting to note that the Garvises do not own an automobile, but do have a full-time servant. While in the United States, a family of the same income would have a car, but not be able to afford a maid. You can see that from the point of view of, of the U.S. In, in the 40s and 50s, it was a basically equivalent society as far as they were concerned. So that, mm. that's an image to have in your head. Is like This is a kind of a nice, modest, but prosperous country. They're a little weird, but, you know, they're well, mostly Well, literally, like the us. comment is, they speak Spanish and they like to barbecue things outdoors, but otherwise you'd like them. So um, I just thought that was an interesting uh, perspective. They have, a du- they have a dull, but apparently satisfactory life. <laughs> we haven't asked, but um, apparently satisfactory. Apparently. In 1950, they beat Brazil in the World Cup in Rio de Janeiro, so... Hey, everything's going well. Two bagger. Pretty good at football. They've traditionally yeah, been pretty good yeah. at football for, for a yeah. long time. Oh, yes. We get uh, another of these non-consecutive terms, so uh, Bache Bares can't go again. So in 51, his buddy Andres Martinez Treba is elected. He brings in a constitutional amendment to bring back the collegial system. Mm. He's supported in this by the Blanco leader, Luis Alberto de Herrera, which increases Herrera's profile. And also conservative Colorados who've been against some of the Bashist stuff decide to get in on this as well. There's a new constitution. There are a lot of uh, a lot of different constitutions. I feel like there's like maybe yeah. up to six we're, different constitutions. Got a few. Um, and it's also important to note that although there's only really two parties at this stage, they're full of factions. Yeah. Like before, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is a continuing thing. So, like in this in this um, national council of government that has nine members, six are from the dominant faction of the major party, and three are from the second party. But the second party has to split its three between its two biggest factions. It's just a mess. So you, you know, the, these Bashists are part of the I think it's called the Nation and Unity faction, and they're opposed by the List Seventeen faction. They're just like it's it's. Impossible to get much um, good insight on this in English, unfortunately. Uh, I wish my Spanish were better. I'm looking at the notes here, Joe. You mm-hmm. got Korean War equals good for exports. End of global conflicts equals bad for bad for business. Yes, it's uh, yeah. that's a, a relatively simple equation there. It is, and perhaps a little bit uh, a little bit flippant. But when the Korean War ends, they're out of people to sell beef and wool to because major conflicts are done for a while. We're into the Cold War. Mm. Apart from Vietnam, there's not not much going on. They don't need as much beef for the Cold no. War. Yeah, so so life, livestock production couldn't cope. The industry stagnated, inflation rose. They had conflicts with the US about the sale of wool, and the US was selling its surplus food into Latin America at cut-down prices. So things were going badly in the 50s. The Blancos in 58 win the presidential election with the aid of that rural federation and that uh, anti-communist radio show host. Oh, God. That must be the first time in a, in roughly about 50 years, Senior right? Madonna. Yeah, it's been a while. the presidency. That's uh, Herrera becomes president and he died soon after. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> and again, he was real old as well. Like he was in the government 
in like 1905 or something. Words right. to anybody over 25, Joe Byrne does not care whether you live or die. Uh, yeah. I'm just saying he's not dying because of assassination attempts or anything. He just, okay. Um, All right. they, I think they gave yeah. him the presidency because they figured he deserved it at this stage. And Herreras are still are still a thing in modern politics. Right. That gives you an idea of the state of the country at the time, mm. I guess, and how desperate things were getting. Like, they'd elected Colorados pretty consistently for about 50 yep. years, and then, you know, at this point, decided to turn to the opposition party, finally. And their leader is so old that he, he lasts six yeah. months. Yeah. He's been waiting for his turn since the, since the 30s. Like, you know, they'd emerged from that full decade of war, mm. and they were like, ah, oh, these guys seem to be doing a pretty good job of keeping the peace. Let's stick with them yeah. for, you know, almost 50 years. Yep. Well, this is the first time, sorry, this is the first time the Colorado's lost in 94 years, the presidency. Wow, 90, wow. 94 years, okay. But the whole dream is starting to crumble, and new parties start cropping up, like the Catholic Christian Democrat Party, the Communist Leftist Liberty Front, and the Popular Union, which is formed by intellectuals and dissidents from the main parties. In the next three years, the cost of living doubled, and again in the next two years. Good God. And Oof. in the decades... We're talking about now 57 to 67 real wages fell by 40%. So you're, you're buying power through the floor. Right. Basically, fascism had left the state with huge expenditure in social welfare and in, in uh, they would help out like small businesses to get started. They do all the good stuff that you'd like. Yeah. Lots of national industries as well. Yeah, lots of nationally run stuff mm. and huge expenditure, low demand for beef, for leather, for wool. Inflation went crazy as the state borrowed and borrowed and borrowed to keep these mm. schemes going. Benito Nardone was actually president for a year in 1960, the uh, the radio personality. All right. Uh, maybe there's more to him than that, but that, that's kind of what, what I got from my reading. Thank God we're in an age where media personalities no longer just come up and be president, eh? That's, uh, that's firmly in the past. Don't <laughs> even go there. Anyway, in 1964, the government had really thin majorities. They struggled to rule. And in this year, both Bashir Beres and Benito Nardone died, deeply altering the political scene, because these were two big leaders of two of the main factions. The workers' movement kind of coalesced into one single national convention for workers, which is called CNT. And this became a threat to the state in many ways, because it was a single militant union. And Raul Antonaccio Sendic, who was the head of sugarcane workers, he brought together the National Liberation Movement, Tupamaros, which was a secret guerrilla organization modeled on Castro's uh, National Liberation Movement. Oh, that's the group that the subsequent president fought with, the revolutionaries. That is it Mujica? Is that the guy's name? Yeah. He was, he was a Tupamaros. He was, yeah. And they're named after King Tupac of Peru, I think. Shakur? Who, no. He, he, <laughs> Tupac II was a, an indigenous resistor to Spanish rule. All right. So he was called Tupac Maros. That's where the name comes from. So it all starts to go to hell because you've got these revolutionary bodies. You've got a bad economy. In 1966, the Colorado General Oscar Gacido is elected. He abolished the collegiate government, gave himself all the power because people thought that maybe this collegiate system made making decisions too hard and stalled all action. We need a man of action, damn it. He was considered to be an able and honest administrator who previously run this state railways but inflation exceeded 100% during this term what is what is that what yeah <laughs> what yeah 100% inflation okay wow yeah so he he promptly died crushed um, under the weight of inflation and his vice president Jorge Pacheco Areco took power people didn't really know what to expect with Pacheco 
He had been the director of El Dia newspaper for a while, but he wasn't very well known. Okay. It sounds like they're kind of running out of presidential candidates. <laughs> exactly. at this, at they this point. do keep dying. It's, uh, it sounds somewhat like the uh, Defense Against the Dark Arts um, <laughs> job in Harry Potter. Everybody, everybody in it uh, in, in this period just dies after a year. Yep. So Pachekism was, uh, as I say, no one really knew what to expect. And by God, did they get lots of stuff. Okay. He outlawed all left-wing groups, newspapers and all small political parties. Thank you. The CNT resisted and were put down pretty, pretty heftily. Tupamaros were repressed. They believed the government was selling Uruguay to foreign interests. They probably were. What else is government for? In 1970, they kidnapped US citizen Daniel Mitrione, who'd been sent by, I want to say the CIA, but I could be wrong. He was sent by some government agency, US government agency, to train the Uruguayan police. And he trained him on how to torture people with electrical implements. Good lord. So Tupamaros decided to take him. You get an alarm clock. And uh, <laughs> open it up at the that's, back and that's, get these two wires. Uh, yeah. And um, you set it to 6 a.m. on a Saturday. That's, not that's what, how you get it. That's him. not what he meant. <laughs> oh, uh, so they eventually executed him. And they also um, kidnapped the uh, British ambassador, Jeffrey Jackson, who Prime Minister Edward Heath actually negotiated a ransom for. It became clear years later. Uh, but both of these cases, all civil liberties were suspended in the whole country for a few weeks to sort them out so we're going down a real so it's chaos basically yeah yeah the threat of guerrillas was used to uh to draft striking bank workers and government employees into active military service no no like you're on strike you're on strike are you oh no now you're in the army um, uh, okay right and military spending grew from 13 percent to 26 percent of the budget while education did basically the opposite 13 percent is already a hell of a lot a lot so it's around this time that uh, one of the most famous pieces of Uruguayan history, I guess, that most people will have heard of, so we won't dwell too long on it, happens in was it 1972, which is the what's known as the Miracle of the Andes, upon which the movie Alive was based, and the book, I think, is called Alive mm-hmm. as well. If you haven't heard about it, it's uh, I'll give you a brief overview of the, the incident in, in 1972. There's a Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 which is carrying uh, 45 people, among them a rugby team, from Montevideo to Santiago in Chile. Mm. Basically, the plane crashed in the Andes Mountains. And it's crazy, they're trying to fly between two mountains. The Andes are so high, you don't go over them. You go kind of through a pass. Oh, wow. You have to go through them. Yeah, yeah. And they they missed. I was doing a little bit of background reading, I guess, and apparently what happened was that uh, the pilot, for some reason, because of cloud mm-hmm. cover, and I think yeah. some kind of instrumental misreading or instrumental failure, exactly. believed that they'd already passed over the mountains oh, and reported man. that they had they had reached Chile already mm-hmm. and descended and then clipped the mountain, which split the plane in half, uh, clipped another mountain. Weirdly, it's a it's a you know for a plane crash uh, on on top of you know one of the highest mountain mm-hmm. ranges in the world. It was actually. Quite a few people survived because what happened was, uh, well, the crash. I believe at least that the plane the plane clipped one mountain, sheared one of the wings off, and then almost immediately clipped another mountain on the other side and clipped and sheared the other wing off. All oh, right. And the fuselage is just sort of like you know a missile at that point. Yeah. yeah. That lands flat. Lands in the snow and has a yeah and flat and most of the people I believe in the fuselage that landed on the snow survived. 
you know, the most of the people that were killed upon impact were sitting either by the wings or at the back of the plane, okay. which was ripped off. Uh, 13 passengers out of the uh, initial 45 were killed in the crash. But because of the freezing temperatures, uh, a bunch of people start to die. And obviously, you know, some people are dying from their injuries and that kind of thing that were sustained in the crash over the next sort of few days. The authorities search for the plane for, I think it's about 10 days. And then the search is called off. Tragically, uh, the survivors discovered a radio in the oh. uh, in the wreckage where they were able to hear the radio broadcast about the search for them oh being called God. off. So they knew it was it was pretty hopeless at that point. One of the survivors, Nando Pereiro, is the guy. Actually, I read uh, his biography a couple of years ago. He uh, lost his mother and his sister uh, in the crash. Uh, I think his mother was killed straight away and then his sister kind of died of her injuries a couple of days later. Oh boy. Uh, I just got a quote from the book here. The book is called Miracle in the Andes. At high altitude, the body's caloric needs are astronomical. We were starving in earnest with no hope of finding food, but our hunger so- oh, soon no. grew so voracious that we searched anyway again and again. We scoured the fuselage in search of crumbs and morsels. We tried to eat strips of leather torn from pieces of luggage, although we knew that the chemicals they'd been treated with would do us more harm than good. We ripped open seat cushions, hoping to find straw, but found only a inedible upholstery foam. Again and again, I came to the same conclusion. Unless we wanted to eat the clothing we were wearing, there was nothing here but aluminum, plastic, ice, and rock. If you don't, if, again, if you haven't heard of this story, oh, no. uh, basically the up and down of it is that we they were forced to eat their dead. On ab- about the 12th day after the crash... I have a quick clip here from a documentary which you can find about this this uh, incident on YouTube. It's from one of the uh, rugby team members, Coche in Inciarte, uh, who just talks about like the agreement that they made uh, between themselves is pretty disturbing. We said, if I die, I will be very proud of you. Take me and hit me until someday if you go out from this mountain. To my girlfriend, to my mother, to all our friends, that I am inside you now because I can give you life with my body. Eventually, this guy at Parado realized that they would need to leave the wreckage behind and, you know, go and find help. So they, they spent a couple of weeks kind of building up strength. And about two months after the crash, uh, expedition began. Uh, Parado and another guy, two of the survivors, eventually. Uh, after about 10 days of hiking, found help in Chile and were able to bring kind of rescue workers and uh, police and that kind of thing into into the crash zone. But the event itself, if you want to know more about it, there's uh, movies, documentaries, books. Uh, Very easy to find out more about this one. Yeah, there's a, there's a podcast called the Disaster Area Podcast. And the host of that podcast, I, I don't know her name, but she did a, a two-hour special on this this whole thing, uh, which is worth listening to if you if you want more context. But, uh, yeah. Anyway. Anyway. In the rest of Uruguay, everything was going fine. The Tupamaros declared truce in 1971 to allow an election, which brings the Colorado leader Juan Maria Bordaberry to power. But the, the broad front, who we'll see later, get a worrying amount of the, the urban support, about 30% of the amount of Fidean vote, showing that the left is on the rise. And this is of concern to the establishment. There was a military coup in 1973 that crushed all student workers and Tupamaros movements. Good grief. The Navy was initially loyal to the president before switching sides. They saw the way the wind was blowing. 
Uh, President Borderberry signs a pact with the uh, the military and it's been called a quasi-coup as a result. He basically gives the military an advisory role in everything. Okay. Uh, the General Assembly is dismissed. <laughs> Replaced by General Assembly. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> and the de facto dictatorship is actually supported by um, a lot of political factions like the, the Pachekists and uh, Herrerists because everyone feels the need to... Right the ship a bit? Yeah. Yeah, to a Yeah. Suspend civil liberties and get things back, like like the 30s, like Terra, all over again. So this has happened before. The CNT had a general strike for two weeks, and then it was banned by the dictatorship. The philosophy was that power no longer derived from the people, but from the need of the state to survive and to resist communism, atheism, and, and so on, in this world conflict between East and West. And it was necessary to sacrifice some freedoms for freedom as it were. Good grief. Uh, in 76, Borderberry suggested to the uh, to the military that they have they ban all political parties and make him dictator for life. And they didn't go for that, so he had to resign. Uh, uh, hey, <laughs> how about you just let me rule forever? Swing and a huh? miss there. Yes. Anyone? No? You know, don't ask, you don't know. There's elections held after Borderberry resigns, although the National Party and Broadfront leaders have both been assassinated in Argentina. Uh, so, it's not a great election. President Demicelli decreed a suspension of elections after he was elected. And then, for some reason, he only lasts three months. And his successor, Aparicio Mendez, banned anyone who'd ever partic- who participated in the last two elections from politics ever. And so politics just stopped. So there's sort of a tradition seems to be emerging here of like anybody who wins an election says no more elections. Yeah, it's it's not a great time. So politics is over now. Nobody can run for any offices. Politics is finished. Uh, it's just... <laughs> I'm yeah. the leader. There's 64,000 people in the military and police now. That's doubled in the last couple of years. Fear right. everywhere. 10% of the population just leave. Education is dismantled with 80% of university professors and 50% of school teachers arrested, fired, or let, let go of their jobs in, in fear of torture. Right. From the book Uruguay by Leslie German, which is kind of a profile of the country, over 60,000 people were arrested or detained during the period of repression. In 1979, Amnesty International estimated that 20% of Uruguayans had been imprisoned at one time or another. Wow. It's one in five people at some point. But I get, just, wow. just for context, to give people an idea, like... This was very much the style at the time. Chile had Pinochet, mm-hmm. uh, Argentina had their Junta. I think the Brazilians had some stuff going on as well. Like it, it was. This is quite common. Yeah, this is no, the norm. But definitely, what Bashir Barres was trying to avert with his policies. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. The they wanted to, like the army wanted to stabilize the economy, but there's an international oil crisis and everything is stagnating. Exports stagnating, increased borrowing. The national debt was four billion dollars. For three million people. So, okay. It's a lot. In 1980, an attempt to get some legitimacy, they had a referendum on a new constitution that would give them a legitimate role. And uh, they lost. 57% of people voted no. So that was a bit of a blow. Anybody for a new constitution? Um, like an, another one? to everything. No. Beef and no. constitutions. Yeah. Yeah. Lieutenant General uh, Alvarez becomes president and he begins political dialogue allowing the traditional parties to organise again but no lefties Mm. obviously democratic supporting factions of those parties do well in elections so the factions who least agree with the dictatorship do the best and basically the um, the people's will starts to become clear the uh, CNT union re-emerges and student movements re-emerge the dictatorship has failed in its goals and the people are done okay in 84 there's massive protests against the dictator 24-hour general strike 
then talks begin to return to civilian rule. Later that year, Julio Maria Sanguinetti Cairolo is elected as a proper democratic president and his legacy is mixed. He kind of brought peace and stability back and democracy, but he did bring in a law of amnesty for pretty much everyone who'd done, all, who'd done that, all the bad things. That is kind of what you do, though. It is. Like, otherwise, you like. I think I, I was reading a little bit about him as well, and there was everybody was suing everybody, and everybody was trying to imprison everybody. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do, you know, this is maybe slightly, not to the same degree, but Mandela style, mm-hmm. yeah. you need to kind of put the hand out and say, look, we can either tear ourselves apart or, you know, move on. And that pretty much brings us up to the, the modern period of democracy yeah. and things going in the right direction. It's, I mean, it's a credit to Uruguay that since 1985, there is very, I mean, okay, I've got lots of little bits and pieces in front of me, but like nothing absolutely massive happens in their history. They they have a, a pleasingly boring history from 1985 onwards. Always uh, nice. And all credit to them. So you get some interesting stuff like, um, President Borderberry was eventually arrested in 2006, actually. For well. for killing those two political leaders uh, in Buenos Aires, because he'd done it outside the country, lawyers argued it wasn't part of the amnesty, huh. and he d- he did go to prison for a bit. So some people saw that as a, a at least a bit of accountability for for some of the disappeared and murdered. Symbolic catharsis for the country, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tabare Vasquez, the the current president, I think, and and yep. the second to last one as well. He he's yep. a He's done the, the old skippy thing. Uh, he is an oncologist and basically hated smoking. And so did loads of really strong anti-smoking stuff. Plain packaging and uh, and no smoking indoors and so on. And Philip Morris International tried to sue him right. as part of a, some international trade agreement. And they lost and had to pay all the costs. So Uruguay stood up to the... Uh, uh, and there's a quote here from him. Philip Morris wanted to make an example of Uruguay to intimidate other countries, uh, but they lost. So he looked a lot like Mitt Romney to me. That guy, yeah, I saw a photo of yeah, him. He's, he's got a kind of a kind of I don't know, good like jaw, all American vibe yeah. to him. Yeah, big jaw, big jaw. Uh, and then the most famous president of recent times is Jose Mujica, Mujica. who ruled from 2010 to 15 also known as the poorest yeah. president yeah he's been the subject of many documentaries he's an and, internet celebrity uh, this guy kind of, like he's yeah he's uh known as a anti-politician yes uh he's very pragmatic he only takes i think it's what 10 or he only took i guess 10 percent of his wages yeah. and his wages were very low as well it was like 12 12 grand or something like while that. while living living in a, a modest house with his wife on an orchard yeah. Living in, living on a shack on a dirt farm. Yeah. Like yeah. uh, he, <laughs> orchard is uh, a bit much. As as Mark said earlier, he was a Tupamaros gorilla and he was in prison for yeah. most of the seventies and eighties. It was it was like for, for 12... a period in the bottom of a well, I think. For but, two years in the bottom of a well, yeah. yeah. It was bonkers. Alone. Like and wow. he said he had auditory hallucinations yeah. and stuff. But I've I like the guy's no dummy. Like you, you see some speeches from him. He he is a very you can see why he was a popular figure. Yeah. He he's very, you know, aspirational, can really give a, an oration. Speaks the language of people. Yeah, he's not afraid to say what he thinks. It's possibly how you might imagine Artigas being, in some ways. Yeah. There's a couple of clips of him on YouTube addressing the UN and he does not hold back. Yeah. They're pretty great to watch. He also famously legalized gay marriage and also made marijuana legal throughout the country. Yeah. And they're in in the process of setting up dispensaries where it will be sold. But people can grow it, I believe. Yeah. 
There's actually a great Vice documentary, which is called "Smoking Weed with the President of Uruguay," which ah, is yeah. uh, is is a pretty good watch if you if you have the time. Can I just read a quote from him here? about this. He said, There has always been a conservative and reactive opinions that fear change. The sad part is that a man who is almost 80, the president said while pointing to himself, has to come and propose a youthful openness to a conservative world that makes you want to cry. That's uh, from an article on, on Mike.com, which we'll link so to. So I, I was reading about the, the cannabis thing most recently because like, you know, poor president, good at football, uh, beef and, you know, so Lots on. Lots of constitutions. Yeah, I just looked it up actually seven constitutions they've had throughout their history so there you go that's not an insignificant number but on the cannabis thing it hasn't really it hasn't turned out amazingly no just Mm. just on that they haven't really been able to fully implement it three years after uruguay became the first south american country to create a legal market for marijuana seven out of every 10 cannabis consumers still acquire their product on the black market Mm -hmm. i was reading this on a security website so this is obviously going to be their emphasis but they were emphasizing the possibility of uruguay being influenced by brazilian gangs yeah because uh it's a pretty safe peaceful place but they're beside brazil which is super murdery there is one group that are called first capital command who are a sao paulo drug gang that sounds sinister their stuff has been found in uh in uruguay and i just wanted to read out the the founders of this gang include misa dafe weird fat face ugly beast and little caesar oh and, and big jelly uh, these were the uh, the founders of this gang that is apparently becoming a larger a larger deal in Uruguay. I'm sure they're scarier than they sound. Oh yeah, no, th- this is like in in prison, yeah. in some like really famous prison in in uh, in Sao Paulo. And there's an an element of why it's possibly not working is that there's a registry you have to sign up to to get your legal marijuana, uh, and yeah. the, the country's experience with um, dictatorship and repression makes yeah. basically. Uh, I think it was that same article that I, I quoted from saying that anyone who is old enough to remember the dictatorship isn't signing up to your registry. Yeah, yeah. Young people might, but um, we, we've we been on lists before. So uh, just on economy, I guess, mm-hmm. just a few little bits and pieces. They're part of Mercosur, along with Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay. So totally free trading uh, between those four countries. Venezuela is a part of it, but they're, they're suspended because their country is descending into madness as we speak. Their main exports are obviously beef, but also soybeans. Oh, yeah. Uh, their, yeah. their soybean crop is almost as, uh, as much as their, their beef. So the vegans and the carnivores like them. Sure. Uh, rice uh, and wood pulp is a big thing. They had a disagreement with Argentina about uh, wood pulp uh, and emissions going into those Who big hasn't? rivers before. And their biggest import, obviously, is crude oil. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I did read that 95% of their energy production is coming from uh, sustainable, okay. uh, like from wind and, and uh, solar and so on. In that hokey US documentary from the 40s, they show some cars mm. with charcoal burners on them. So because they had no oil, oh, they used yeah. to run their cars off wood, which is something I'd never heard of. Despite being a country of only 3.4 million people, they have the 12th biggest cattle herd in the world with 12 million cows, which is more than... I mean, it's almost quadruple the number mm. of people and it's more than triple what Japan has, for example. Wow. Japan being a country of 127 million people. A few other little things. Um, the national anthem is one of the longest in the world at about six minutes. There's about a minute of music before anyone starts singing. And then you have these great lines like tyrants tremble, repeated four times. And it, it, it's good. I recommend it. Fair um, enough. We have some famous things like uh, Edward Johnston, the... Um, Calligrapher who created the London Underground font was born in Uruguay. Okay. 
mostly lived in Scotland, but was born there. The first pacemaker put in, implanted in someone in the Americas was uh, done in, in Uruguay by Orestes Fiandra and Dr. Roberto Rubio. Very nice. Uh, and the patient survived for nine months before dying of another ailment. All right. So, um, bummer. That that's cool. I found a clip of the most famous Uruguayan in the world uh, drinking drinking mate. Everyone in uh, Uruguay with, loves mate. It's, yeah, it's an obsession. With a young boy from Liverpool. Okay, that's that's unexpected. Uh, so maybe just drop that in here. Sure. Isn't it nice to just sit down with a cup of tea? Yes, I like. First of all, then, the question on everyone's lips is, what's that? It's like a green tea, oh, you know? Yeah. But it's from Uruguay. If you if you try, it's, it's, you don't like it, sure. Because it's a little strong. <laughs> that, uh, that voice was uh, Luis Suarez, oh. who is a footballer. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, he's, he's famous. And Uruguay is super amazing, deadly at football. Uh, we already said they won in 1930 and 1950 the, the World Cup, which puts them in like the absolute top tier of countries mm-hmm. in terms of su- successes. Very in the few World have Cup. won two mm. World Cups, I think. Uh, it's only about yeah. four countries. Yeah. So their their record is better than France, England, or Spain, and they're joint with Argentina. Oh, okay. Uh, only a few countries have have won more than them. It's you know Italy, Brazil, uh, Germany, and that's pretty much it. And it's it's not as if they were you know they were a powerhouse in the in the kind of early you know 1900s it's they're still pretty yep. great today like they, they're they're still they came f- what is what is it fourth fourth in 2010 fourth in the last world in 2010 yeah and there's talk of the the 2030 world cup is going to be partially held in uruguay as well to celebrate the centenary oh cool uh, i think i don't know where maybe maybe with argentina i haven't actually a couple of other really famous uh uruguayan footballers all of whom are you know basically playing right now uh edison cavani gaston ramirez maxi Pereira, diego godin uh and formerly uh diego forlan as well but just some stuff about their... So they're ranked ninth in the world, ahead of Spain, Italy, and England. Uh, they've won 11 out of 29 South American championships, hmm. which was like the, wow. the South American regional football thing up until 1967. And since then, the Copa America, they've won four out of 16. And just so you have some context, in both those, that's better than Brazil. Uh, so hmm. they are really, really, really good at football. So, okay, if we're talking food, obviously they love beef, uh, which is asado, no. barbecued beef, yeah. And, and, the and a, lot, a lot of milk, milky dishes as well. Um, oh, yeah, because like of all those cows. And, yeah. They have chivito, which is a steak sandwich, grappa miel, which is a honey liqueur, hmm. um, and bizcochos, which is little cakes and pastries that you eat with your, with your uh, coffee with your in mate. the morning. Yeah. Uh, military, uh, just, uh, I think some of you guys found this as well, that they're one of the largest contributors to the UN peacekeeping forces. Mm. That in 2011, Ban Ki-moon gave some speech saying that they were, you know, the, the, the best, basically, in terms of contributing troops. And then it was 2,400. 27 Uruguayans have died in UN service. Uh, now it's slightly less. It's actually only uh, uh, 1,304. And they're only 21st in the world in their contribution. But at the same time, they, they're sending 1,300. The U.S. sends 68. Oh. So, you know, for context, they're they're still doing pretty good. More than 25,000 Uruguayans have served in 21 peacekeeping missions since 1951, uh, which is pretty, you know, pretty amazing. Good on they're, you. They're, they're also 21st in the world in rugby at the moment. And their team is, is oh, yeah. nicknamed the Charuas because of their fierce resistance to, I don't know, 
Europeans or something. Uh, yeah, so that that's that's a legacy. And we should just before we wrap up mention again Candombe music, which oh yeah start started in those um, boarding houses, the uh, Salas de Naciones in uh, Montevideo, and has spread into wider Uruguayan culture. Oh, Candombe music has three drums: the uh, chico, the piano, and the repique. And each has its own rhythm that it plays. The repique kind of improvises a lot more. It's it's really cool. It's really it's really yeah. fun. It's really rapid fire. Really good stuff. And it, it, what's cool is it's often quite spontaneous. So someone will will put out a yamada. They'll start just call by starting to play their drum in the street, and other people will hear the drum and they'll get their drum and they'll come out and join, and they'll have like a street drumming session. That sounds like a great idea, but my my local uh, residence committee would go berserk if yeah, I Yeah, they've been doing, doing it for 150 <laughs> years. I think it's okay. And it probably started with um, black carnival troops. At, like, carnival's yeah. a massive thing around, um, what, what would it be? Oh, like, just before Ash Wednesday. So, like, uh, yeah, Mardi yeah, Gras yeah. Or, um, or, or even carnival in brazil so it is a big uh, an element of black culture in in that even though i think only five percent of the population identifies having black heritage mm. the cultural uh, legacies is is very pronounced also played a big role in developing tango along with buenos aires so between the two cities tango kind of started in this in this uh, estuary fair enough so that's kind of cool all right i think that'll bring us to the end of uruguay a country with a lot of violent history, I guess, and a lot of like internal conflict, but uh, pretty progressive. Sounds like a pretty great place to live today. Yeah, I kind of want to go. It, like, yeah, it's not it's not necessarily all the time when we do a place that you're looking at and you're like a lot of beef, quite warm. Everybody seems all right. Good uh, music. Yeah, I'd be on for that. Yeah, I'll see you there. So that takes us to the end of our episode today. Just a reminder that you can find our show notes uh, in most podcast apps and uh, podcast players where you can find a lot more extra reading and links and videos and the flag and stuff like that. Check them Um, out on our website. Also links to all the music that we used in today's episode. Or you can check them out on our website, uh, www.80dayspodcast.com. Thanks again to our sponsor for the season, HarryBaby.com, where you can get 10% off any purchase by using the promo code 80days. We also like to thank Kickstarter backers today, Nick Eisen and Owen Byrne. Uh, thanks very much for their contribution to kings. our recent Kickstarter campaign. Uh, you guys are you guys are awesome. Uh, we also want to thank Reddit.com slash R slash Uruguay for providing a playlist and music suggestions. Yeah, the community and a there were really helpful giving us things to and in fact we could link to that thread in in the show notes as well if people want to see what Oh yeah. What um what we will what we Uruguayans will. wanted us to talk about and, and that playlist of uh, of music is is real good <laughs> wasn't that a, a mel gibson movie what uruguayans want yes anyway yes. sorry <laughs> i'm sorry if you want to give us any feedback you can contact us at 80 days podcast at gmail.com we'd also really really love if you could leave us a rating or a review on itunes that's how we gain more visibility and that's how we get more listeners so if you've enjoyed what you've heard we'd really appreciate it if you could uh, drop us a five-star rating or you can find more episodes wherever you get your podcast you can search 80 days podcast on twitter or facebook joe you want to tell us where people can find more about you on the internet they can find my musings on time to burn.com and mark I'm on Twitter, uh, at MarkBoyle86. Uh, I'm not really updating my blog at the moment, but if and when I do, it's uh, the toner of leak. You can find me at the Luke J. Kelly on Twitter or at LukeJKelly.com. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Adios. Me 
gusta la gente Yo me voy a Uruguay Es casi siempre caliente Look, okay, I, I gotta be honest, just a slight interruption. I, I'm drinking mate, the uh, super caffeinated uh, Uruguayan and Argentinian tea. And if I'm sounding a little hyperactive, that is maybe a large part of that. It's really... My apologies for utter nonsense there, but there, there is a, a, a chemically heightened reason behind we it. We appreciate you going the extra mile in terms of research, Mark. That's, uh, that's taking one for the team. <laughs> 